The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we are concluding our series today called Refined in which we have gone verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter. So we're coming to the end. This is the last set of verses. Uh, I read something uh, from John Piper just the other day where he said, and this surprised me, that this is one of his favorite books of the Bible, 1 Peter. And when I thought about it, though, it makes sense because the anthem of his life has been that uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so this book, 1 Peter being one of his favorites, actually it, it makes perfect sense with the emphasis of what he's kind of done with his life uh, and I say that because if, if you've tracked with us, or even if you haven't, I'll tell you, we have been encouraged over and over throughout this letter to flip our understanding of trials and suffering right on its head. Uh, the natural man sees difficulty as a sign of God abandoning them. Peter has encouraged us to see our suffering as a way we are connected even more to Jesus, who suffered in every way that we do. Uh, Human nature is to fall into a pit of despair and discouragement during trials, but this letter has encouraged us to find and rejoice in the precious treasure that is only found in those low places. Uh, We've been called and encouraged to see our trials like the refining fire of a crucible, removing impurities and revealing the beauty that God has placed in each and every one of his children. Uh, If you think you've had enough encouragement to see suffering through the eyes of our Savior, and you were kind of hoping Peter's going to close this letter uh, without addressing it again, um, you might be tempted to check out because he's going to stay true to the theme. We're right down to the last several verses here, and he's going to hit it again. So we're going to because we're just riding the text. So praise God. Uh, Just remember what we said a few weeks ago, that if... If the guy that Jesus handpicked, and I'm talking about Peter, if the guy Jesus handpicked and personally trained to be the leader of his disciples, if that guy focuses his letter so intently on these truths, there's definitely a good reason. And so instead of us going, okay, Peter, I hear you, we should be thinking, hmm, why is he saying it so many times? (laughs) Am I potentially prone to not totally get it and or forget quickly? Uh, Yes is the answer to that. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Um. Here's the truth. Our ability to walk out the joy-filled life that God intends for his children will be heavily dependent upon our ability to understand, believe, and embrace these precious principles. And so there's a lot riding on us understanding this and being able to believe it. So I'm glad for the repetition, thankful uh, that we're going to have a chance to look at this together tonight. So we are in uh, 1 Peter 5, and we're going to do verses 6 through 14, finish out the chapter, okay? Here we are. Let's go. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Praise God for his word. Uh, So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 now, because they kind of stand alone from the rest of the flow of thought, and then we'll go back to the beginning of the chapter and work through the whole thing. So first of all, verse 14, greet uh, greet one another with, with a kiss of love. If any of you gentlemen have tried quoting 1 Peter 5.14 to a woman as a pickup line, I just want you to know that Jesus is very disappointed with you, and so am I, okay? So just let that sit upon you for a second. 
Uh, I know that there's some youth group boys that uh, that was their favorite verse when I was younger, um, and it didn't work real good for them. But uh, what is being talked about here, this is a customary sign of affection uh, in that time. It was most likely carried over from the synagogue. Uh, And just basically what it did is conveyed love and respect as you greeted someone. The point is not specifically how love and respect is conveyed, but that it is conveyed. Peter, what he's saying here is when you greet one another... Uh, show some affection. So, you know, act like you're happy to see one another. Um, it would have been very uh, non-sexual and non-weird for them to greet each other with a kiss. It was probably a kiss on the cheek. I don't think they were, you know, locking lips every time they saw each other. But uh, here, here's the bottom line. Here's what he's saying. We should experience real joy when we are given the privilege of being in the presence of brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, A heartfelt smile, a firm handshake, or a warm hug can serve the same purpose of conveying the love we have for one another in Christ. So that's his his point. Greet each other with love. Uh, The letter here, focusing on the trials that come from living in a world broken by sin, ends with a benediction of peace upon all those who follow Christ. We see that here. He says, peace be to you, uh, all who are in Christ. Um, that's the way Peter ends his letter. So, so this agrees with Paul's assertion in Philippians that we who belong to Jesus should have peace that surpasses understanding. Uh, what does that mean? That's peace that is not dependent upon circumstances. Peter's speaking this benediction upon all that will read the letter. If you belong to Jesus, may you walk in the peace that comes in knowing you belong to him. Uh, and that kind of overrides everything else if we really understand what it means. Uh, as far as having peace that surpasses understanding, I, I just simply want to say I agree, and may it be so for us. Um, I think a lot of sometimes the, the tossing to and fro, the difficulty that sometimes we have to walk out faithfully, the call of God has to do with simply that we haven't totally bought into the idea sometimes that uh, that kind of peace is available for us. Um, but the Lord's continually growing us in that, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, verse 13 says... Uh, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. So uh, the, the she who is in Babylon, this might be a reference to a particular woman, but it's more likely a reference to the church family in what Peter calls Babylon. So he, he's talking about she, and, and, we, and we know this is either right as it's happening or right before the Roman emperor Nero really turned up and ratcheted up persecution against God's people. So they might have been speaking in a little bit of code here. Uh, but that she is probably a reference to the, the bride of Christ, the church. So it's, it's kind of the church where Peter is greeting everyone. Uh, most people believe that this reference to Babylon is a veiled reference to Rome. Uh, tradition puts Peter in Rome around this time. And, and why he called it Babylon. Well, Babylon had also harshly subjugated and ruled over the people of Israel earlier in their history. And so that's kind of what's going on there. Uh, the guy Mark he's talking about, this is likely John Mark, who was well-known among the churches. He's the author of the Gospel of Mark, uh, and the material for that gospel is widely believed to have come from Peter's eyewitness accounts. Mark sat down and essentially wrote down what it is Peter said happened uh, in regards to Jesus' ministry and his life. So all of that, uh, that handles those two verses. Um, we're going to jump back up to verse 6. We'll work down to verse 12. I just want to call something out real quick. Um, I, I realize that the, the, the common wisdom, in air quotes, of the day is that going into the detail about those two verses and giving you those things right there, that that was probably a waste of time. Probably how I should have approached this text was to grab three really easy to understand principles from it and just kind of spoon those, feed those to you. And, and that nobody's going to care about who Peter's talking to specifically or who the characters are in this thing. And um, I, I'll just go full disclosure and say, like, first of all, I just believe God's people do care more about his word. I mean, Natalie's got a box of letters from me when I was just a dumb 16-year-old kid trying to get her to marry me. And, like, those words mattered to her, right? And I'm just her husband. I'm not her God. I mean, every single one of these words from the Lord is inspired. And, and there's, there's things in it for all of us. And I just believe this church cares about every single one of them. So if we're working through a book, man, we're going to look at every one and talk about what's going on. And I believe we care about it. And I, you know... I think there's something in every verse for us. And so uh, you're not going to get three quick principles in 20 minutes here. Um, We're going to dig. So I'm thankful for it. I know know you guys are too. So just wanted you to know that's on purpose. Uh, 
case that someone's like, does this guy know that most people don't care about that? Well, maybe most people don't, but I'm dealing with real Christians, and uh, I'm thankful about it. Amen. All right, verse 6. Uh, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. This is calling us to place ourselves under, but also in the hands of God. What does that mean? That means we're trusting his provision and protection, as well as his guidance. And it's, uh, it's assuring us here that when the time is right, God will raise you up and place you where you will flourish, and he will be glorified by your life. Now, instead of humbly trusting God in this way, Oftentimes, like the fools at Babel, we are, we are tempted to forge ahead in pride, cutting our own path and making a name for ourselves. Many times this leads to frustration and discouragement. Uh, there's a few different ways that happens. One is that sometimes it proves too difficult to be our own God, and we find ourselves real frustrated and kind of stalling out. Um, and then I've, I've had to counsel many people that then end up mad at God because they didn't submit themselves underneath the might of his hand, didn't trust him for guidance, protection, or provision, went out and did their own thing, jacked their lives up, and they're like, God, where are you? Uh, like the prodigal son's father, he's on the porch waiting for you, but you know, sometimes there's consequences when you do dumb stuff. You say amen to that? Amen. <laughs> that wasn't very deep, I know, but we got to remember it. <laughs> sometimes we forget. Um, so being our own God doesn't work. Sometimes that leads to discouragement, but really worse than that, like the very worst thing that can happen is when it seems like this approach works. When we go out, strike out on our own, we don't humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we kind of try to do our own thing. When, when that seems like it's working, uh, and a person is able to attain what the world sees as some definition of success, uh, whether that be in their career or business or their family, or by gaining power and wealth, uh, the truth is the roaring lion that's referenced a few verses uh, later here, he devours some through misery and difficulty, Essentially, like he tried to do with Job, get him to curse God because life's so hard. Some people uh, get devoured that way, but, but many people, and I would say probably more, uh, they get devoured through comfort and success. They get devoured through the idolatry of thinking that they are their own God. Uh, they strike out on their own. They don't humble themselves. Uh, it looks like it's working. But here's the thing. Jesus asked a really powerful question, and we should keep it in mind as we think through these things, what it looks like to humble ourselves underneath the hand of a holy and a, and a very powerful, sovereign God. Here's, here was Jesus' question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I'm just letting that sit on you for a second. That's a good question, Jesus. Thank you for that question. Uh, I'm going to ask myself that question more often. Amen. That's the worst thing that can happen, though. If someone think that what they're doing, their, their defiance, their pride... And sometimes it's not overt. Sometimes somebody just never even thought about whether or not they were made by God, belong to God, have any kind of accountability to him, should obey him. Uh, they just don't think about it. They just go out and kind of do the thing. And uh, sometimes that's even worse than things falling apart because sometimes things falling apart helps us to stop and go, hold on, maybe something's not right here. Uh, sometimes success can be an opiate that uh, leads to death, so... All right, verse 7 says, Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Weird question for you. Has anybody in here seen the movie Twister? Go ahead. Hands up if you've seen the movie Twister. Tell on yourself. Okay? I have seen it. All right? So I'm there with you. Uh, so if you don't know what it is, it had Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton as storm chasers who were married but about to get a divorce. But then they got the hots for each other again after they survived an F5 tornado. So, riveting storyline. If you haven't seen it, I would suggest it to you. So, uh, so anyways, in that movie, right as the tornado is about to plow through this little building they're in, um, they find these pipes that run like 30 or 40 feet down into the ground. And so what they do is they grab these leather straps and they tie themselves to those pipes uh, and... The tornado comes through, the whole building gets blown away, but they survive. How realistic that was, I don't know, probably not, but, and they did, but they survive. But here's, here's why. Here's why they weren't blown away with the building, because they were anchored to something so deep, it wasn't affected by the wind. Now, you might be asking, why is this guy giving me a synopsis of a not-that-great movie from 1996? Fair question. I hope you're asking it. 
Here's the answer. One, I'm getting old, and so my references are also getting old. You're going to have to deal with that, okay? That's part of your grace to me. Uh, that movie doesn't seem like that long ago to me, so there you go. Um, but here's the other reason I, I, I made the reference. This verse right here, verse 7, casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This verse right here can be like those pipes for you. It can be an anchor that will keep you from being destroyed by the storms of life. We have to believe and obey what verse 7 is telling us. This is a key right here. And so that's why I gave you a movie synopsis from 1996. Because I, I really believe if you tie yourself, if you anchor yourself to this truth, you're going to be a lot less likely to get blown around, man. A lot less likely to get tossed to and fro by waves of false doctrine and or just the difficulty of, of, of the waves of life. And so let's look at it together. Uh, First of all, we have, to, we have to follow the flow of thought. We have to remember what was said just before this. If we don't humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, we will never be able to cast our cares on him. Okay, So it's, it's got to go in sequential order. Uh, if we don't humble ourselves, we will believe this, uh, the ancient lie that our first parents did, that we know better than God. Uh, we will carry our burdens, actually being foolish enough to think that they are better cared for in our hands than in God's hands. The other problem is that if we don't humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, we will have burdens that should not exist. Many people carry burdens that are simply the result of lies that they believe. Many carry burdens of identity, struggling to believe they have any value or worth. Many carry burdens of provision because they don't believe God can or will provide. Many carry burdens of guilt because they struggle to trust that forgiveness and salvation are possible by grace through faith in Christ alone. Part of humbling ourselves is admitting that God's ways and thoughts are higher than ours and submitting to what he has declared and promised in his word. If we don't humble ourselves first, we're not going to be able to obey verse 7. When we walk in humility with the help of the Holy Spirit... We can skip the weeks or months or years of carrying the crippling burdens we were never meant to. Because we have no problem, if we humble ourselves, admitting our inadequacy for the task. If we humble ourselves, we can join the Apostle Paul who declared in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Here's what he said. He recounts this. He asked God a question, and then God responds to him this way. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what God said to Paul. Here's Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That sound like the right or wrong attitude to you. It's difficult. You're... It's the exact opposite of the narrative you're receiving most of the time. The narrative you're receiving most of the time is to, is to be peacocking constantly, let everybody know about all your good qualities and hide your bad ones. Figure out a way to feel secure and confident. Project, right? Paul said, I glory in my weaknesses. I'll put them right out there because I know that the strength of God is perfected in my weakness. That when I'm willing to admit I don't have what it takes, to do this, it leaves room for him to fill in those gaps. If you're confident in who Christ is and that he's in you, you don't have to suffer from the insecurity that comes in, in trying to do it all yourself. That, that all sounds good, maybe. <laughs> the, the question is, though, like taking all of that together, why is it so hard to do? Why is it so hard to humble ourselves underneath God's Mighty hand. Why is it so hard for us to cast our cares on him? Um, how can we truly cast our cares at the feet of Jesus and not worry about them anymore? How can we do that? Part of the deal is we have to believe, we have to believe that he cares for us. Peter put those things together, didn't he? He said, cast all your anxiety on him. He could have just said that and moved on to the next thing, but he gives you a reason. Because he cares for you got to really believe that. My question to you, dear friend, is do you? Do you believe what God has revealed about his patient, enduring, never failing love for you? Do you believe that basic general premise? 
that God cares for you. To varying degrees, if we're honest, probably at varying times, right? So what do we do? This is part of why this book is so important. Many have interpreted the difficulties, trials, and struggles of their lives as evidence that God doesn't love them. Has anybody, have you ever heard someone talk like that? Or you'd be honest enough even to say, I've been tempted to think that way, or I have thought that way, that I've just suffered a period of darkness or extreme difficulty, suffering, whatever it is, and, and, and I've, I've fallen prey to that thought that this somehow, it, it, it communicates that God doesn't actually care, that what he's declared as his affection for me, that that's not real or that he has abandoned me. That, that's, off, that's, that's, that's why he over and over again, that, that is a human tendency for us to encounter struggle or difficulty and, and, and make that mean or interpret that as God's not there. God's not holding up his end. This book tells us over and over again, actually, he's there in the midst of it. He's going to use it for your benefit. He's going to take that trial, and he's going to use it as a purifying fire that removes impurity from you, and he's going to make you stronger and better on the other side of that thing. He's going to grow you in faith. And the whole time, if you can think about it, you can understand that the Lord Jesus himself struggled in the same way. And so you can take joy and comfort in knowing that your Savior has already gone that way that he's conquered the very temptation and difficulty that you're, you're struggling through. He's had to deal with it. And that he has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He does care. This book is real important. Sometimes people have believed the lies of the evil one that whisper, he doesn't love you. Every time they're struggling. The question is, how do we silence these lies? How do we silence the enemy always in your ear saying, he doesn't love you? Look at this. If God loved you, this wouldn't be happening. You must have sinned. This, this, and this is broken. This, this, and this isn't working right. Look at your health. Look at your emotional state. God doesn't love you. Am I the only one that's ever dealt with that? Or is, should I interpret the silence as that I'm, I'm not alone? Right? Either, either you've experienced this liar up in your ear, if you've been real close to someone that has, I would say if we're, if we're honest and perceptive, all of us to some degree have dealt with this. So the question we're going to answer is, how do we silence those lies? How do we get those whispers to go away? And the truth is you can't necessarily make the, those whispers stop. Satan is the God little G of this world. He's going to run around and tell lies until Jesus does finally come back, make all his enemies his footstool. He's, he's going to snap the back of all of his enemies and he's going to reign supreme. That day's coming. Um, and holding on to that hope is part of how we stay encouraged. Uh, so until then, you can't necessarily make the whispers stop, but you can drown them out with the thundering declaration made at the cross of Christ. Because when Satan is up in your ear saying, he doesn't love you, you can yell back, guess what? The perfect sinless Lamb of God slain by his very creation let himself bleed and die out for my behalf on the cross. That doesn't leave any room for a question about whether he loves me. He already proved how much he loves me. Not to mention his continued faithfulness from that point forward. Not to mention the, the rest of what the scriptures have to say about how good he is, how attentive he is to his children, how much he is in the process of sanctifying us and conforming us into the image of his son. Not to mention how faithful he is to provide above and beyond our, our salvation, which if, if all he ever did was pay the price for the problem we started with our sin, if all he ever did was that, he's a good, caring, and, and immeasurably loving God, but he's gone far and above Beyond that, he's been faithful all the way through, and he's not stopping. Praise God for that. You can drown out those whispers. The cross declares with earth-shattering volume that the God of the universe cares, that he knows you are frail and weak and unable to save yourself, and that he is willing to give it all to help you. You don't need new information, dear one. The way we fight this battle, the way we Obey these verses is not that you need some new piece of information you haven't heard before. You just need to truly believe the good news you've already heard. There's all kinds of different people at Love City. It's part of what I love about this church. There's people that literally, you know, the first memory they have is in the nursery at a, in a church building somewhere. And there's people that they haven't been walking with God real long. They were, they were straight rapscallions all the way up until a year ago. I mean, we've got 
the spectrum runs the whole gamut here at Love City, but, you know, if you start reading your Bible, you start having anything to do with Jesus, there's, there's a verse typically that you learn right at the beginning. I remember one of the first verses I ever learned when I was in a, a children's uh, church-type class was John 3.16. And sometimes, man, we hear this stuff so much, it gets to the point where it, it, it doesn't have the effect that it should. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, he sent his only son so that whosoever should believe will not perish but have everlasting life. The, the answer to the question that there is no debate on whether or not God loves you. There's no debate on it. He has proved it through sending his son to live an absolutely perfect life. Step in, die the death that all of us should have. Rise from the grave and then come back, sit at his right hand as our advocate. There is no question. The cross of Christ answers the question, does God love us? The gospel answers that question. He loves you. And if he loves you, he surely cares. <laughs> if he cares, he can be trusted with your cares. Why do we struggle so much to cast our cares upon the Lord? I think for some of us, varying degrees, we've had broken human relationships. We've had all kinds of things. that have, We've had whispers over and over again that it causes doubts about whether or not God really loves us. And it's really scary to take the things that are concerning you and hand them to somebody you're not sure you can really trust. And I know this, sounds, this is kind of like kindergarten Christianity class, but how good are we doing in general at not worrying? How good are we doing in general as the people of God in walking in a bold confidence, a peace that surpasses understanding? How good in general are we doing at casting our cares at the feet of Christ? So I think... That answer also has a varying degree in spectrum, but I don't know that the world sees the people of God as pretty much carefree and full of joy no matter what goes on in general. And we should ask ourselves, why? What's going on? What's the struggle? Well, you might think, well, I need to find a new book on anxiety and stuff. No, you probably don't. You probably need to go back to John 3.16 and figure out, do you really believe God so loved the world and so loved you? that he sent his only son for you so that you would not perish and that you could have everlasting life. Do you believe that? Do you believe God loves you? Or have you believed the whisper over the years because you've had a difficult situation here or a bad relationship here or a struggle here? Has that whisper gotten to your conscience and has it really begun to form the way you see this God that you say you love? Or is there really doubt maybe that's been planted in there about how good or trustworthy he really is? And friend, I'm asking you to honestly assess that. I'm asking you to submit that to the Lord. And I'm also asking you, if you find any shred of doubt in you about how good or loving God is or how perfect his character is, I'm going to ask you to just grab your own face and stick it towards the cross of Christ and stare at it until you believe God's good and he loves you and is worthy for you to be able to take your cares and be trusted with them. Amen. He can be trusted. I want to just say something real quick in, in, in regards to this. It says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Um, the Greek word here, it, it means worry. It, it has no connotation whatsoever of anything medical. And I just want to say that I think it's somewhat unfortunate um, the way certain struggles uh, ha have been named, right? Primarily, th this there's there's certain conditions now that kind of fly under the um, flag of anxiety disorders. Okay, and the the point I'm making in that is sometimes people that suffer from anxiety disorders that have physiological reasons or chemical reasons or a combination of reasons. Sometimes it's diet related. Uh, sometimes it's environment-related, whatever it is, there, there are people that, that they could be worrying about nothing and their heart will start to beat right out of their chest. Um, they'll be dizzy. They'll have what people refer to as panic attacks. And, and the medical community has kind of broadly named this stuff anxiety. And, and I just want to say that's, that's not what's being addressed here. It's, it's, it's talking about worry. It's talking about kind of the, the thought life that you do have the ability to kind of discipline and, and with the help of God, take control over. Now, I also do want to say, though, that whatever I wish they would have named those anxiety 
disorders. And the reason, I, the reason anxiety makes that confusing, I think, is it, it unfairly makes it seem like the person is in control of it, right? Like, a lot of times people get dismissed when they're, when they're suffering from, from anxiety-type issues. Nobody, nobody tells someone that has seizures that they're faking it or they should just buck up and get it together or anything like that. That's not the way we talk to people. Or you got a broken arm. Well, don't get a cast. Just toughen up, buddy. You know what I mean? Like, we don't treat people like that. But oftentimes when it comes to what, what, whatever are the causations and or symptoms of everything that comes under anxiety, sometimes it's tied to depression, sometimes it's not. But um, I just wish we would have named it something different, just maybe so that people had more compassion, but also it, it wouldn't, I think sometimes people that suffer like that could come to verse 7, and be, because the medical condition is called anxiety disorders, they'll, they'll look at this and feel even worse because maybe they're suffering from something they can't control. So the other like overarching good news is, like no matter what the name is, I believe Jesus is a healer. And so if you're suffering from anxiety of any form or kind, whether it's physiologically based, whether it's emotionally based, whether sometimes it's triggered by thoughts that you could control or not, at the end of the day... Jesus is a healer, and you can cast your anxiety about your anxiety on him, and he cares for you. Amen? Amen. Okay. Good. Hallelujah to all of that. Uh, that brings us to verses 8 and 9. It says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Uh, first thing we need to point out here is that uh, Satan here is described as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, other translations will see, say seeking someone he may devour. And so what, what we need to know about this, first of all, in order to have an accurate picture of what this really looks like, Satan is a declawed, defanged, and defeated enemy. All of those are true about him. Well, I'm not sure. Sometimes it seems like he's got a lot of power, and sometimes it's really hard to, to push back against those lies. Well, let me just read something to you that, that will back up my, my, my big boy pants statement I just made, right? Uh, let me read this to you. This is Colossians 2. I'm going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read through 15. This is why I would say Satan is declawed, defanged, and defeated. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He's triumphed over them through him. The authorities and powers being talked about there are spiritual authorities and powers. We know from other places that, um, like Ephesians, that our battle's not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers. Uh, there is forces of darkness. There are people against God and against his people uh, that, you know, either on purpose or accidentally end up working for the enemy. But at the end of the day, we need to realize those roars of this, this lion all they are are lies. Um, and the only ones who can be devoured by this guy are those who believe those lies. That's the way it works. He's roaring, seeking who he can get to buy in to the line he's selling. That's what he's doing. Why is he walking around roaring? Why isn't he walking around biting? What, think about Peter's description. Why isn't he walking around scratching if he's going to use the lion analogy? Like some of you are so stoked because you're just like, Imagining a National Geographic setting, and, and you're, just, you're, you're all the way there. Come back from the zoo. This is just an analogy, okay? But, but let's, Peter used it on purpose. He's doing something very intentional here. Satan's not running around scratching. He's not biting. He's doing one thing. He's roaring. He's intimidating. He's, he's lying. He's seeking who he may devour. He's trying to find someone that will buy into and be scared of what he's selling. Uh, as stated earlier, the, the lies, they can drive you to misery and difficulty, or they can drive you to ease and comfort. Satan is happy with either, uh, so long as they get in between you and Jesus. So Satan will lie to you and get you to worship success and idolatry, and he'll get you to go that way, uh, and, and he'll even lie to you and, and get you to think, well, well, 
God must be blessing me because I'm rich. And, and, and off you go, but you've got no relationship whatsoever with Christ. You're not obeying him. You're not a part of gospel mission. Satan will deceive however he can. He'll, he'll get someone to bite that carrot or he'll go the other way. And he'll try to uh, get somebody to believe that all the struggle and difficulty in their life, the pain that they've suffered, is, is, is absolute undeniable evidence of God's unfaithfulness and lack of love. He'll go any way that he can go with somebody as long as it gets them not to believe the truth about Jesus. That's what he's about. Just a liar. He's a good liar. I hate to give him any credit, but he's a good liar. That's why a lot of people end up getting stuck and, getting, and buying in. Uh, it is interesting that when we are encouraged to stand firm in our faith and resist this loudmouth liar, uh, other believers are mentioned. Did you notice that? If you look at verse 9, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Very interesting. Why would that be? Why is that Peter's flow of thought? As he's alerting us to the fact that we need to be sober, be on alert, pay attention because there is an enemy and there is a liar and we are prone to believe those lies. Uh, he calls that out, but then as part of the, the, the way we resist that, he's saying stand firm in the faith, but then he ties, he ties it in with other believers. He's got us thinking about the fact that we're not the only ones going through this. Uh, why, why is that? Well, if, if you watch lions hunt, uh, they almost never run straight into a herd of animals that are tight-knit and close together, because that's dangerous for them. Uh, first of all, m most scientists think that, that the lions struggle to distinguish one animal from another when they're really close together like that, especially animals that are patterned like zebras. They don't think the lions can even really tell which one you know, goes where. So if they stay close together, they're, they're typically doing good. What a lion does is they'll wait and they'll watch for a sick or a hurt or a foolish animal to separate itself from the rest so they can get it isolated and away from the protection of the rest. Satan works in the same way. Through strife and offense and shame and pride, he separates believers from one another, pulling them away from the encouragement that comes from our common bond in Christ and our shared sufferings as his people. There's lots of reasons Peter could have chose any animal, right? He, he could have said, Satan is a flamingo, run around pecking people, right? Like, he could have done anything. But I, there's, there's reason why I believe that the analogies that are in the scriptures were inspired by God to be there. Uh, lions hunt this way, and so does Satan. You can, you can be 100% sure if you're feeling like isolating and drawing away from God's people as a result of whatever, however you're feeling justified in it. I, I, I literally don't care what your excuse is. If you're feeling like isolating and pulling away is the right thing, you can be 100% sure that that raggedy old haggard lion is at work and you're playing into his game. I heard what was a cough or an amen, maybe towards the back. But either way, uh, <laughs> that's true, man. That's true. You can amen or not, but it is. Um, you know, some of you have watched the destruction in others' lives. Some of you have fell prey to that lie before yourself. Uh, Satan is always, he's about division, man. He is about pulling, pulling people away because Peter understands here, the Bible has a witness of it across the board. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That we're called in Hebrews to spur each other on to love and good works, not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, because when you do that, what ends up happening is you get real sideways stupid most of the time. Uh, the Bible, over and over again, it has this emphasis, and, and really it's, it's inherent here as well. There's a reason why Peter goes straight to resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Well, what's a great way to be reminded that you're not alone in this struggle, fighting against the forces of darkness, serving Jesus, being a part of gospel mission? What's a great way to be reminded you're not alone in that? I don't know, hang out with other people that are like also doing the same thing, thinking the same way, about the same business, that being the Father's business. It, it, you know, Again, you're like, that's not real deep. I know it's not real deep, but then why don't we do it, right? Like, why is it not a high emphasis for us? Why 
Why do preachers feel skittish about, you know, saying to people, yeah, you, you should be gathered with God's people and it should be consistent, like more often than you're not? Yes, yes, because the lion's out there and he's waiting for you to get lazy or get offended or get whatever and get separated from the herd, man, and he will pick you off. He might be declawed and defanged, man, but he will gum you and swallow you and devour you. The Bible says he'll still devour you. He'll mess up your life. He can. It'll cause problems for you. It says we must be sober and on the alert. We've got to be sober and on the alert for these subtle strategies. You know, I, I'll just say this. I, I, know, I know we live in a day where everybody's justifying, you know, just about anything. And, and, and if you want to justify... Um, drinking, smoking, popping, doing whatever you're doing to, to, to get yourself to the point where you're at this place of stupefaction, you're not sober anymore. If you want to justify that, like, go on ahead. But I'm just telling you right now, I've done all that, and I know 100% I was more prone to the lies of the enemy under the influence of substances that were dulling my senses than I, than I would be otherwise. And so you can do what you want with that. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I realize... I, we, we can run, run around and around and around the Christian Liberty Mulberry Bush, and I can hang with you. We can have a great conversation. It'd be lots of fun. I'm just saying, when you're calculating what it is you're going to partake in, what it is you're going to be a part of, what it is you're going to do, just remember, you need to be sober and on the alert. And I don't think zebras are out there on the Serengeti popping Xanax because there's lions out there. Well, what if I cut it in half? I, I still don't think the zebra's going to do it. Because lions, right? And that's our problem. We're so distracted, we, we get lulled into the fact that we, we don't realize like, the reality of the situation, that this is, there's some real deal stuff going on, and we're just bored and we need something to entertain us. Like, come on, folks. There's a gospel war being fought here. There's, there's forces of darkness trying to come against us and trying to keep everybody that doesn't know about Jesus to, to keep on not knowing about him. And we're called to be the light of the world. We're called to be able to bring an a, a, a actual tangible force against that. Uh, and it's the truth and the beauty of the gospel. So, um, you know, I, I didn't think up until this point there was anything that would have offended anybody, so I had to think of something. Uh, so that was probably pretty good, hopefully. All right. Um, <laughs> so let's be sober and on the alert because these strategies are subtle. And that's the thing. That's, that's why you got to be sober and on the alert, man. It's... it's you know, the lions don't run up, right, like with, with LED packs on like they had at Blink a couple weeks ago, like, hey, here we are, right, like disco music. No, man, they're sneaking, they're creeping, they're coming through the grass, you never see them coming. You don't know they're there till they're on you. It's subtle, and so you got to be alert. You got to, if you've got two seconds to move, man, you need to be able to juke. You understand what I'm saying? And, and, and we get... We get stupefied. It's not just substances, man. It's, it's all kinds of stuff that we just dole ourselves down and we're not thinking about what's really going on. Our awareness of the spiritual reality of, of everything that's going on is, is just, it's not there. But we need to be alert. Uh, we need to pay attention. If we walk in the light and we're quick to forgive, we refuse to stay offended, and we deal with any issues that rise, any issues that rise as quickly as possible, we leave no chance for the enemy to devour us. Let me say that again, because I made a big statement. If we walk in the light, that means we're accountable and open and telling the truth about what's going on with us. If we're quick to forgive, if we refuse to stay offended, and we deal with any issues as quickly as possible as it pertains to within the household of faith, we leave no chance for the enemy to pull us apart and devour us. You stick together, you stick with God's people, you're, you're not going to be able to be pulled off by that, that ragged old lion, okay? Um, he's got to get you offended, hurt first, or pridefully assuming that you are, you know, Neo, the super Christian, and, and you're going to go out and do this thing on your own. It's just not the way we're designed. That was another old movie reference, <laughs> in case you didn't catch it. That was from The Matrix, not sure what year it came out. <clears throat> Don't tell me if you know. I'll probably be discouraged. Okay. 
so basically, what does this call us? We, we stand firm in our faith, which is faith in Jesus and his gospel. When he says stand firm in the faith, what is our faith in? It's in Jesus and his gospel, which allows us to walk this life out together as imperfect sinners who can love and forgive one another no matter what. How do we do that? Because we are vibrantly aware of how much each of us has been forgiven. It's very hard to get a person offended and bitter that really realizes how much grace they've received from Christ. That's what the whole parable of the wicked servant is about, right? The one guy uh, comes in before the king and owes him, you know, a lifetime's salary worth of money. The king, he falls down, grovels. The king says, okay, I'm going to pardon you. The guy, the guy that just got pardoned, you know, a lifetime worth of salary, goes out in the hall, finds this other guy that owes him 10 bucks, grabs him by the throat, starts choking him, says, I want this guy thrown in jail until he can pay me back the 10 bucks. Well, guess what, brother? You forgot people talk because somebody ran up to the king and said, hey, you know that guy you just forgive? A whole lifetime salary worth? He just ran out here and put this other guy in jail, choked him and everything over $10. And Jesus said, what do you think that king's going to do? He was real serious about it. He said, that guy's going to go to jail and he's going to be dealt with severely. So let's play who am I in the story, okay? If you thought you were the king in the story, you are wrong. You are not the king. If you thought you were the servant that owed $10, you are also wrong. That's not you in the story. You are the servant that owed a lifetime salary. You have come to King Jesus who has pardoned you through his grace and mercy. And that means you have no right whatsoever, ever, to be holding stuff against other people. I'm really happy about that part of the sermon. I know you're not happy about it. I know you're not. But I love you, so I still got to tell you the truth. Jesus can help you. That's the whole point of the whole book. There's going to be a lot of hard things. You're going to need Jesus' help. I'm going to, I'm going to publish that. This is my summary, commentary on 1 Peter. Amen. Okay, verses 10 and 11. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. First of all, it's, there's an intentional contrast here. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And so, what he's, what he's saying here again, and he did it earlier in the letter, and he's doing it here again. He's saying, after you've suffered for a little while, that little while, uh, it could be like a portion of your life, but the fact that it's con- this little while is contrasted with uh, you being called to eternal glory means Peter's probably, this suffering for a little while, he's talking about your whole life. He's talking about the entirety of your existence upon the earth is going to be, to one degree or another, some kind of, there's going to be some suffering going on. And, and, and it's not that hard to understand that, right? I mean, is there a day that goes by that some effect of the fact that the world has fallen, broken, and sinful doesn't make this difficult for us? I mean, we get that. Certain seasons are less difficult than others, but the reality is, uh, he says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself... Um, I don't know, some translations will say that he, he's, he will personally, he himself, he's going to do these things. It says, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so, again, as has happened earlier in the book, there's all kinds of ways Peter tries to encourage us through this little while <laughs> of 80, 90, 100 years, whatever we're going to have, we're going to experience the difficulty of sin and brokenness. One is he continually points us back to Christ. He's like, yes, you're suffering. Yes, it's hard, but look to Jesus. Yes, I know this is difficult. Yes, I know you want to give up, but look to Jesus. So he does that over and over again. But something he also does is he keeps putting in front of us this idea, yes, this is hard. Yes, it seems like a long time, but it's actually not a long time. The long time is, is the good side. The long time is the eternal glory in Christ. The long time is something that you get to look forward to. That's ne- it's never going to stop. Once you cross that finish line of eternity, it's never, ever, ever, ever going to be bad again. It's always only going to be good because you're going to be in the presence 
of the unveiled face of Christ forever. And so just remember that, because sometimes that might be all you got right here in this moment. When the darkness feels tangible and as if it's pressing in around you, sometimes what you're clinging to, sometimes your, your pipes down into the ground when the twister's coming, sometimes it's going to be the eternal promise that, that one day it won't be like this, that one day every tear will be wiped from every eye personally by the King of glory. And he personally is also going to do these things. And so he's, he's putting this, it's, it's not a carrot because there's, there's no deception in it. It's, it's, this, it's this hope. It's a true thing that we can place, uh, we can place future hope in. But here's, here's what he says, perfect. What does that mean? Jesus himself is going to remove every bit of sin from you. Think about that. You know and I know that much of the struggle and difficulty of this life is a result of, of our own sins. A lot of the times our difficulties are caused by our own mess-ups. He's promising us here, a day is coming, Jesus is going to perfect you. He's removing all sin from you. The tendency for it, the, the, the frailty, the, the, the tendency for distraction, all that, it's gone. He's going to perfect you. He's going to confirm you. What does that mean? He is going to remove absolutely every shred, even the hidden stuff way down deep in your heart. He's going to take all the doubt away. He is going to confirm you. You're going to be to the point that there will be no question whatsoever who God is, how good he is, how much he can be trusted. Every single doubt, there will be none of that. It's going to be gone. He's going to perfect you. He's going to remove all sin. He's going to confirm you. He's going to remove all doubt. He's going to strengthen you. That means a day's coming, he's going to remove all the weakness. The weakness that Paul calls us to glory in right now, the frailty that means oftentimes we don't have what it takes to get it done, all of that weakness, all of that difficulty that comes from that weakness, it's going to be gone. He's going to strengthen us, and we're going to be in a situation. The beautiful part is that the weakness is going to be gone, but we're not even going to have to fight anymore. The battle will be completely and totally over. And we're going to be able to rest. The hope of future eternal rest in the glory of God. Some days, friends, is, it, it's, that's my pipes in the ground, I'm telling you right now. Because some days I feel like, whew, Lord, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And he'll remind me, I'm going to sustain you right now, but a day's coming. It ain't going to feel like this anymore. So I take a breath put my trust in him, keep going, and he gives me the strength to, to make it. So I'm thankful. The last thing he says he's going to personally do, he himself, he's going to establish you. This, this, this speaks to steadfastness. All of that wavering and double-mindedness that you, you struggle with, all of that back and forth, it's gone. He's going to establish you. He's going to set your feet firmly planted. You'll never be moved again. No more confusion, no more sin, no more doubt, no more weakness, no more back and forth. Personally, he's going to see to it that you're set right <clears throat> in all these things. I hope that means something to you. I hope you're excited about that day. I mean, I'm sure on the other side of glory, nobody's going to do what I do and try to cheat lines and stuff. I mean, I can't tell you how many roller coasters I've cheated to get up to the front of the line. I need to stop that because I'm a Christian. But if I see an opportunity, I'm tempted. I don't think I'll do that in heaven, though, because part of what the Lord's going to do is probably help with my patience. So, Amen. So what, what is all of that? So, so he says all of that. He gives us this beautiful promise. He sets this thing before our eyes that we can, we can hope in, uh, that what eternal glory is going to look like. And then he says, to him, that God who is going to personally see to every one of these details as it pertains to you, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. All dominion is his. He's in charge of everything. And he deserves to be. Praise God. Verse 11 says, Through Silvanus, that's, uh, that's, in, in Greek it's the same as Silas. So Paul and Silas, you hear about them in Acts. Silas did a lot of dictating, uh, probably both for Peter and Paul, helping them transcribe. Peter may not have been a great writer, uh, so he might have needed the help of a scribe, but... Uh, through Silas, or Silvanus, our faithful brother, I, or so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, these, these five chapters on enduring trial and difficulty, it's briefly, uh, in Peter's mind, exhorting and testifying that this is the true 
grace of God. This is the true grace of God. All that what I've written to you, this is the true grace of God. And so stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. The true grace of God, friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what this entire book has called us to fix our eyes upon as we navigate this life with all of its mountains and all of its valleys. This true grace of God is the beautiful truth that none of us is perfect, all of us have failed, all of us deserve death and hell. That is what we have purchased for ourselves. That is what our actions have earned. And what God has done in proving how much he cares for us, how much he loves us, how much he's willing to pay to have us, God sends Christ to solve a problem that we never could have solved on our own. Jesus comes. He's born in a humble stable to two poor parents in the town of Bethlehem. He sends angels to let somebody know. The first people he tells is some, some raggedy shepherds in a field. The whole thing doesn't look like the way a story looks when men conjure gods, right? This isn't what we do. We don't, we don't conjure up gods that are, that, are, that are self-sacrificial. When we come up with gods, they're powerful and strong, and they're always in charge of everything. And, and most of the time, in every other religion, what, what people are trying to do is just get the god's attention through sacrifices or doing whatever, noble deeds. They're trying to just get that god to pay attention to them. Here we have, we have a god that is from the beginning showed, my attention is on you. You don't have to wave your arms. You don't have to do something crazy. I'm looking at you. I see you. I love you. I care. And I'm sending Christ to prove it. And, and Christ is the full expression of this god. He comes and lives an absolutely perfect life. He's, he is tempted and he suffers just like we do. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he never once disobeys the Father. And then he steps in, pays the price that all of us should have, but couldn't. Even if we had died the same way he died, it would never have balanced out. It wouldn't have paid the price of our sin. But the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, the Son of God, allowed the very creation that he was there to create in the beginning, to beat him, to torture him, to nail him to a cross, and then to jeer at him as he died. But that's what Colossians that I read to you earlier was about. See, all the forces of darkness thought they won. Oh, no, they didn't. They didn't understand. It's what, when, CS, when Aslan dies in the Chronicles of Narnia, man, so funny, me and Natalie saw that movie, and uh, there was this guy in there, and when, when Aslan comes back, he is the, he's the picture of Christ in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's books. When Aslan comes back, the kids are like, yay, Aslan's alive, you know. And, and, and his comment on it is, the witch didn't understand the deep magic. And he's talking about how the witch couldn't have understood how, how Aslan's self-sacrifice, the same way Jesus sacrificed for himself, how that would actually be conquering the forces of darkness, how that would take away the sting and the power of death, that he was the holy one that death couldn't hold, and that's why three days later he came up out of the tomb just like he said he would. I forgot the rest of my story. When Aslan said uh, the witch didn't understand the deep magic, there was this brother that got it in the theater. I'm telling you, right? I mean, he, he about had a fit. You know, I mean, he was lost his mind. And I'm like, brother, go home and praise, man. We're just watching Chronicles of Narnia. It's cool. Everybody's fine in here. It's fine. It's all good. I thought it was great. I mean, I had goosebumps. I was pumped that Aslan was back, you know. But, whoo, that brother felt it. Honestly, I wish we were more like him, man. I mean, honestly... How do we ever talk about the sacrifice of Christ and his triumphant resurrection and, and, and not almost have to jump up out of our seats? That's what I'm talking about. Something has settled on us, man, like a dust or something. There's something wrong with us. We, sh we should have to dance, man. We should have to sing. We should have to bow and worship when we think about the fact that God sacrificed himself for us, for me. We're missing something, man. If that doesn't absolutely just infuse us with joy and strength and power. Does that mean we never struggle? Absolutely not. That's why there's a whole book about how to deal with struggle. <laughs> it's trust in Christ, man. But we should at least be half what somewhat excited about what's been done for us. So far from what we deserve, friends. Amen. Why does the gospel apply? Why, why does he end this by saying, 
I'm testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It really comes down to what we talked about in verse 7. If we trust God's character, if we trust, and how is it we, come, we can trust God's character? We, that, it, it circles back around. We have to look at the gospel. The gospel is what shows us what our God is really like. If we really buy into that, if we can really trust that by faith, that this is the God we're dealing with, this God that sent his own son to die for us, if, if that's what we're dealing with, then I can stand firm in the midst of any trial and trust that that God won't leave me. I can stand firm in the midst of any trial and know that actually that God won't leave me and he's going to be doing something in me in the midst of that difficulty. I can trust that God. I can know that no matter how dark it seems, no matter how much despair is trying to close in around me, no matter how hopeless it looks. Do you think it looked real hopeful when those boys got tossed in that furnace for refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar? How hopeful did that situation look? Scale of one to ten. Negative two? Didn't look good because they were going in. But there they go, in the furnace. But there was a fourth man in with them. It was the Lord of glory. And friend, I know you're in a furnace today. Everybody, to varying degrees, you're, it may, life may just be normal right now, and yet there are pressures and difficulties. There's places to be tempted to be discouraged. There's places to be tempted to think that, man, I don't know if God's really in this thing. Friends, he is. And if you're tempted to doubt it, look at the cross again. That's the, that's the faith he's asking you to stand firm in. Stand firm in what we know about this God. His love is unquestionable. It's proven because Jesus came and did what he did. Because of Christ and his cross, we know this God can be trusted. And he's good. Amen. May we be a people who humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. May we be a people who trust he cares for us, and thus we can cast our cares on him. May we be a people who stand together by faith, trusting in the true grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this precious letter from the Apostle Peter to those that have been spread out in his day that were suffering persecution. I thank you this letter wasn't just for them, but it's for us. I thank you, Lord, that you, when you inspired this, you knew in 2017, Love City Church would be going through this book together. Thank you that this truth applies to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that even though persecution looked different in that day, we, we have our own set of struggles today. There are difficulties. There are roadblocks in the way. There are distractions and difficulties that make it hard to stay focused upon the mission of loving God, loving people, and making disciples. This, these very simple things you've asked of us, Lord, it's not a lot. It's not complicated. And yet daily we find ourselves distracted. We find ourselves overwhelmed by the concerns of this life. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us with these things. Help us to flip our understanding of trial and difficulty on its head. May we get to the point, Lord, that when difficulty comes, we, we, like the apostles, can rejoice and say, thank you for the opportunity to suffer in the name of Christ. Because we know, not because we're weird or because we like the suffering so much, but because we know what it does. We know what it produces. We know that trial and difficulty, it's an opportunity for us to grow in our faith to be with you in the midst of it, to trust you and see you be faithful to everything you've promised. Thank you, Lord, that you strengthen us through these things. Thank you, Lord, that you can be counted on. Thank you that we actually can truly cast our cares upon you. Thank you, Lord, that when we do that, when we trust you, when we take those things that are worrying us and, and plaguing our minds, God, we take them and we, and we throw them down at your feet, that, that you're always there to catch them that you're faithful to your promise. Lord, I pray for every single person that hears this and has heard this. Lord, I ask that you would help them by the power of your spirit to trust you to the degree that they actually can cast their cares on you. I thank you, Lord, that you're never taxed, that you are completely and totally omnipotent, that your power never ends, and so we can all, all of your children can come. We can bring you these difficulties, these struggles, these doubts, these fears. We can bring all of it and we can cast it off and that you'll take it. Lord, I, I pray for every single person that will hear this, that the burdens that they're carrying, 
Lord, that they'd be willing to give those to you. I thank you, Lord. You didn't, you didn't make us to carry those. And you've said, you've invited us so many different ways through your word to come and bring those to you. Lord, help us to trust you. Not just with the burdens that are so big that it's obvious and so other people start to ask us about it. Lord, I'm talking about even the internal ones, the ones that we hide well, those weights that we've got tucked here and there and we don't let anybody else see. Lord, may we give those to you as well because you see them and you care. Thank you for making it undeniable how much you love us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. Thank you that that communicates to us now and forever, that your love for us has no bounds, there's no limit. You'll give absolutely everything to help us, to save us, to have us. Lord, help us, help us to join in, to rejoice in the vision you have of us and you forever. Lord, help us to think more about eternity. Not like we want to escape and get there, but help us just to, to revel and to glory in the fact that the day is coming when every single imperfection that sin has caused is going to be reversed. Every broken thing is going to be fixed. Thank you, Lord, that gives us hope now as much as it gives us hope for the future. Lord, all of our trust is in you. We have no other real option. You're worthy and faithful and perfect, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.